Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco Radio. This week, we take a look at Argentina's far-right libertarian Javier Milei. Hyper-conservative populist blowhard with a background as a television personality enters presidential race. Plus, a boom of Japanese zines. Zines provided a format where people can basically pick any subject that they are interested in and turn it into content. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And we start the show with the latest Foreign Desk Explainer, rock and roll singer, tantric sex coach, and now presidential candidate in Argentina. Andrew Muller explains who Javier Milei is, his politics, and if he has a chance of winning the election. Here, it is tempting to sigh with a despondent massage of the temples. We go again. Hyper-conservative populist blowhard with a background as a television personality enters presidential race. Blames a nebulous, ill-defined establishment for his nation's woes. Incites rage against an unacceptably liberal media. Stokes conspiracy theories. Promises simple solutions to complex problems. Reassures a constituency of the angry, crazy, lazy, ignorant and aggrieved that it is not their fault that they are not enjoying the lives to which they believe themselves entitled. Argentina would appear to be the latest country determined to learn the hard way the lesson of what generally comes of indulging such charlatans. Its presidential primary elections, held at the weekend, resulted in a thumping victory for 52-year-old Javier Malay, whose CV includes rock and roll singer, radio presenter, talk show host, tantric sex coach, and owner of several mastiffs named after notably dogmatic economists. It has been suggested, and Malay has never emphatically denied, that he has engaged a medium in order to communicate with one canine companion who is no longer with us. We will return shortly to what may transpire should Argentina's voters decide that this picturesque resume is the stuff of which heads of state are made, but first a sort of sub-explainer of Argentina's electoral system is in order. Sunday's vote was not the presidential election. That occurs along with a parliamentary election on October 22nd. Sunday's vote was the presidential primary, in which all Argentinians vote on who will make the ballot. And all Argentinians is literally the case, as like all sensible democracies, Argentina enforces a compulsory vote. As such, the primary is a strong indicator of pre-election voter sentiment. The threshold for getting through to election day is 1.5%. Malay, running on the Liberty Advances ticket, astounded pollsters by accruing 30% of the vote. And while Argentina's establishment parties, Together for Change and Unity for the Homeland, polled 28 and 27% respectively, each of those numbers was split between two candidates. Malay was the favourite in 16 of Argentina's 24 provinces. Therefore, as of right now, Malay has to be considered favourite to become the next tenant of the Quinta de Olivos in Buenos Aires. So, what kind of president does Malay wish to be? 
well. To the extent that Malay could be said to have a coherent ideology beyond attention-seeking gadaboutery, it's a deeply weird mix of seething conservatism and fundamentalist libertarianism, possibly best summed up in his rigorous opposition to abortion and advocacy of a citizen's right to sell their own organs. If your mother had decided not to have you, it's an assassination in the womb. Life begins a conception and ends when the person dies, no matter how it's interrupted. It's a human in evolution. It's an assassination. How many people die in Argentina every year? More than 350,000. Now, with the Faustina law, those are all potential donors. So the question is, there are 7,500 people suffering. Something isn't working. We have to rework the mechanism of the market. Beyond that, he appears to want to abolish Argentina's public education and health systems and its central bank and abandon Argentina's peso in favor of adopting the US dollar. His preferred vice presidential running mate is Victoria Villarruel, an MP known for attempting to assert a more balanced view of the years not all that long past, during which Argentina's military dictators threw their opponents out of aeroplanes. Weirdly, the one subject on which Malay is relatively reasonable is the one subject on which Argentinian politicians are usually at theatrical pains to be seen as unswervingly insistent, i.e. the Falkland Islands. While Malay believes they are rightfully Argentinas, which is hardly a controversial view in Argentina, he favours a diplomatic solution, and actually kind of sympathises with the Falklanders, or at least says he understands why, quote, they don't want to live in a miserable country as we have currently. Past a determined deadline and having complied to the determined objectives, the UK gave Hong Kong back to China. I'm not saying it'll be the same with the Falklands, but we have to take in consideration the people living on this island. They're living on the line between a developed country and a miserable one. Audaciously for any Argentinian politician, especially one with ambitions of securing more than three votes, Malay has cited as one of his principal political heroes, Margaret Thatcher, which is a little like running for office in the UK and announcing your idols as Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm II and spiders. Given that Malay is, to all outward appearances, a ridiculous and somewhat unsavoury kook, the reasons for his undeniable appeal must be contemplated. Unhappily, the democratic world of the 21st century has furnished quite the library of instructive, if clearly not sufficiently cautionary, examples. Malay, like Trump, Bolsonaro, Le Pen, Johnson, Corbyn, Zamor, feel free to add your own favourites, sells the narrative of politics as a plot against the citizenry, an establishment stitch-up. And the thing is, there is always going to be the material, because politics is almost by definition an establishment stitch-up. The fact that populists such as Malay are almost invariably part of that establishment is a fact that both leader and supporters agree to overlook. In Argentina's particular case, Malay isn't entirely wrong when he thunders that the country's political class are, quote, a parasitic, larcenous, useless caste that is sinking the country. 
Argentina's inflation is comfortably north of 100%. Its benchmark interest rate is 118%, though it's worth noting that the central bank hiked it to that giddy height immediately following Malay's primary win. Two months is a long time in politics. Malay may burn out before election day. But even if he does win the presidency in October, he may not be able to get much done. Due to lacking support in Parliament, his party presently holds just two seats, or by being undone by the bungling and scandals which tend to beset experiments in government by Yahoo. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And now, a very interesting story for Marseille. Next month, France will host the Rugby World Cup. And by way of welcoming the anticipated influx of visitors, the Metro in Marseille will add announcements in Spanish, English and Provençal. So let's hear what our panel on the Monaco Daily have to say about this. I'm quite embarrassed because I'm just remembering the 2012 Olympics in London and the idea that anybody in London or England probably it would have occurred to them to try to accommodate the influx of people from abroad making that huge pilgrimage to London for the Olympics. It just would not have occurred to them. So once again, if we needed it, here is a sign of European sophistication that perhaps we can aspire to in this country. So you don't like any sounds at all. Um, Didn't I mean, during those same Olympics, they were desperately trying to get people to different restaurants. I, re- I think they realised that people were, the, for once, the tube was running so effectively and efficiently that people were sh- were just swimming on through to the east of London to the games and then swimming on back to the west to their hotels and that all these poor um, restaurants that were hoping for a massive coin that year, that summer, weren't getting it. So Boris Johnson, the then Mayor of London, suddenly boomed over. I mean, I could do without him on the tube for sure boomed over the, with the tannoy to tell us what restaurants were open and what vouchers and discounts were available where. So but, but something it, we could get, do without, but I But exactly my point. And you mentioned London and the Olympics and the fact that London doesn't do things like have announcements in other languages on the mm-hmm. tube. But it prompts the question of, well, where does one stop with this? There are 300 languages spoken in London. You can't possibly put a... I mean, you probably could, but it would make the tube absolutely unbearable. (laughs) More unbearable than normal. Well, they just... uh, We just do what we always do, which is assume that every single person in the world speaks English, particularly if we speak it more loudly, slightly (laughs) more slowly, and we say, can we have chips with that? Uh, Would there also, uh, William, this is a thought that occurs to me, be people in Marseille entirely entitled to observe that Arabic and Berber are probably both pretty widely spoken in Marseille all the time, not just at the Rugby World Cup. And if we're going to add languages to the metro, maybe those should be the ones? Well, they might be. I mean, I saw they're going to add Provence, which is uh, you know, Provençal, which is mm. a dialect of, uh, of France. I mean, they're going to take this seriously. I mean, we Scots don't actually speak the same English as the English, nor the Irish. You know, They'll, they'll have to have a bit of dialect in there. In fact, <laughs> and nobody will be able to listen to any announcements of Scotland beat South Africa. Africa on that first weekend, it'll be it'll be it'll be moot. You know. <laughs> are, are you are you in favour of initiatives of this sort, though? Well, I think it's, it makes just makes sense. I mean, the world has changed a bit. I mean, when I was a young diplomat, everyone everyone spoke English and French, and French was the language of diplomacy. I think the French have come to realise now that actually. 
English is the lingua franca. Oh. Uh, and even they know that now, and they no longer insist on it in meetings. So I think it's just a, it's a smart commercial move to welcome your visitors. I think you know we could we could certainly do with it in in, in Britain with the, you know, the bit of bit of Chinese and Japanese occasionally. But it does take away a little bit of the kind of Phileas Fogg thrill of travelling to other countries, mm-hmm. doesn't it? I mean, I remember twenty over twenty years ago going to Japan on my own and having to memorise um, the names of towns from the guidebook yeah. and then just frantically looking on the sign. And there was a great sense of achievement and pioneering spirit that came with that. And I'm not sure that I would get that if I were to visit Tokyo in 2023. Indeed, one of my happiest backpacking memories was getting on entirely the wrong train in Sofia, ending up, I don't read or speak Bulgarian, and I'm not all that red hot on the Cyrillic alphabet, ending up at a railway siding on the Serbian border and finding, <laughs> fortunately, a, a, a locomotive driver who saw the humour of the situation explained that he was about to go back to Sofia and let me sit up the front and help drive the train. Oh, look at that. You got oh, to drive a yeah. tutu. Excellent. <laughs> that, would, that would never have happened if there'd been signs in English <laughs> at see, Central Station see? in Sofia. All that adventure. Exactly. You're listening to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And on the Monaco Daily, in the last weeks, we've been choosing some of our staff to tell us more about their nerdy pleasures. This is a very good one. Monaco's Christy O'Grady tell us about her love for The Simpsons. I love homework, I exclaimed at five years of age to my bemused uncle. The truth is, I don't like homework. I never have. I don't even like regular nine-to-five work that I actually get paid for. Thank God my bosses won't hear this. I'd go as far to say that I spend Monday to Friday simply looking ahead to the weekend. I love these lazy Saturdays. It's Wednesday, Homer. Ah, Work! In all honesty, I dragged my heels writing this monologue for so long, I had Lillian Fawcett asking about it like Fat Tony demanding Homer Simpson for the pretzel money. Where's the money? When are you going to get the money? Why aren't you getting the money now? And so on. So please, the money. Which I guess finally brings me to my point. It wasn't homework that I loved. It was Homer. The year is 1997. The Simpsons has been airing on the BBC in the UK for a mere six months, eight years after its initial release in the US. The episodes were played out of order and were yet to find a regular slot. But already, I was hooked. I can't say for certain if it was the goofiness displayed in Dance in Homer that first drew me to his character or the schadenfreude of his misplaced elation as he accidentally skateboarded over Springfield Gorge in Bart the Daredevil. I'm going to make it! I'm going to make it! This is the greatest thrill of my life! I'm king of the world! Woohoo! Woohoo! I... But I know that I grew steadily fonder of that buffoonish oaf and the colourful world he lived in. So here I am, 26 years later, writing at my desk, looking at the Mr Burns meme I made and stuck to my lamp, and the pop-up box of Simpsons socks my colleagues gifted for my birthday. Apparently, I don't know why defeats the purpose of this nerdy pleasures series, so I'm going to have to think about this for a second. Perhaps it's the simple yet off-kilter jokes. Mo, I need your advice. Yeah? See, I got this friend named Joey Jojo Jr. Shabadoo. 
That's the worst name I ever heard. Oh, no. Hey, Joey Jojo! Catchy musical numbers. See my vest, see my vest, made from real gorilla chest. Or lines that I can and do use in my everyday life and connect with people nearby who get the joke. Mendoza! It's also given me a great understanding of popular culture through its millions of references. This is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. Let's see. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times, you stupid monkey. Although, it can't always be trusted. I once sat through an entire amateur production of Guys and Dolls waiting for this completely fictional song. Guys and Dolls, we're just a bunch of crazy guys and dolls. And a friend was disappointed to find out this is not how the novel Little Women ends. And then they realised they were no longer little girls. They were little women. As I get older, I have grown to appreciate what The Simpsons has taught me about life, like politics. And three, our six-term mayor, the illiterate, tax-cheating, wife-swapping, pot-smoking, spendocrat, diamond Joe Quimby. Hey, I am no longer illiterate. And complicated family relationships. There's one episode which made me cry the first time I saw it, featuring Lisa Simpson, who is intellectually and emotionally intelligent beyond her years. She suddenly has to say goodbye to her substitute teacher, Mr. Bergstrom, the first person who ever truly made her feel valued and loved. You can't go. You're the best teacher I'll ever have. Oh, that's not true. Other teachers will come along. Oh, please! No, I can't lie to you. I am the best. But, you know, they need me over in the projects of Capital City. But I need you too. Later in that same episode, she confronts her father, hurt that he fails to share earnestly in her interests. I think you'd understand. Hey, just because I don't care doesn't mean I don't understand. You, huh? sir, are a baboon. <gasps> Me? Yes, you, baboon, 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 baboon. In a rare moment, Homer is able to read the situation and offer genuine wisdom. Now, you lost someone special and it hurts. I'm lucky because I never lost anyone special to me. Everyone special to me is under this roof. It's true. Reminds Lisa that what he lacks in erudition, he makes up for in love and happiness. At least I'm good at monkey work. You know, monkey. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can hold these nails in place with my tail. (laughs) In another episode, Homer is forced to confront his own death after eating a poisoned blowfish. So you're going to die. He spends his final 24 hours making memories with his loved ones before finally making peace while listening to the Bible on tape. Ooh, it's read by Larry King. The show constantly confronts tough themes such as death, religious freedom, ageism and broken marriages, all with genuine sincerity. The safety of cartoon resolutions and well-timed humour mean you never realise you're being taught something about what it is to be human. We are going to keep on trying to strengthen the American family to make American families a lot more like the Waltons and a lot less like the Simpsons. Thus George Bush Sr. lamenting in 1992 that the American family should be more like the idyllic, loving sort as portrayed in the 70s drama The Waltons and not the dysfunctional Simpsons. 
But can we really call it dysfunctional when it mirrors so many of our lived experiences? At what majority does abnormal become simply normal life? But I suppose this is all why I love it now. What was it that kept me watching 26 years ago? Remember that uncle I mentioned earlier? He loved that I loved The Simpsons. We'd laugh about it together. He'd buy me toys and Simpsons branded nougat on his holidays. It created a bond between us that led us down the aisle, arm in arm, on my wedding day. I don't think he still watches it now, but I think of him whenever that theme tune plays. And, as tomorrow is Saturday, that's exactly what I plan on doing. I love these real Saturdays. They're so relaxing. I like that fake Saturday that almost got me fired. And now a highlight from The Globalist, very interesting one, looking at the boom in zines in Japan. And our guest was Narumi Imayuki. She's a designer, illustrator and zine maker, and she's from Sao Paulo, but she lives in Tokyo. Let's have a listen. The word is derived from the terms fanzine or fan magazine, and it can be explained as a self-published work with oftentimes a small circulation. Uh, where did they come from? You talked about fanzines. Right, right. So fanzines have been around for a pretty long time, uh, but these uh, origins can be traced back. The zine itself can be traced back around the 1960s in the States. And uh, ever since, they have taken roots around the world in many communities. And in Japan, zine, as it is known today, its modern format, uh, we can say that it started really taking root around the 2000s. And what kind of publications were emerging in the 2000s when they, when they first hit Japan? Right. So um, Japan, as you mentioned, has had a long uh, history of self published work, but uh, zines provided a format where people can basically pick any subject that they can, that they are interested in and turn it into content. So that was moderately new. It was like, you know, you know, around the 2000s, you know, the internet uh, was slowly becoming part of like people's lives, daily lives. So um, it was like turning blogging into like paper format, so to speak. So uh, I would say that people started exploring all kinds of topics from recipes uh, to guides to diaries. That sort of uh, genre was pretty popular. So tell us a little bit more about what we're experiencing today. And, and you mentioned you know, re recipes and what have you in the early 2000s. But what are you and others making in Japan? Right. So today, I, there has been even more experimentation when it comes to zines. So you can see a variety of genres. Uh, something that I see often is comics, uh, both, you know, manga, which would be the, the comics here in Japan, uh, but also Western style comics made by locals, which I find pretty interesting. I've also seen portfolios, people who use zines to showcase their work. Uh, as well as, you know, travel diaries or photography, journals, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. And it seems to be um, a rather healthy reaction to the fact that nowadays 
Um, as Amma Rose was mentioning in the in the arts review a moment ago, we are visual, we are instant. Our concentration spans uh, are not being stretched enough when we when, because of the amount of time that we spend online and on our phones. How much do you think that the, this resurgence of zines has has been a reaction to this? Right. So I I believe that the pandemic, of course contributed to an increase in the amount of hours that we spend online, whether for work or entertainment. So I, this has led many of us to search different ways of uh, spending our free time offline. So Zine is a great off-screen creative outlet uh, because it encourages people to interact uh, and form communities around a common interest. And since, you know, we all spent many isolating months during the pandemic, uh, I think we are all craving now more human interaction and more ways to connect with others to express ourselves. So, so we, Z- we have sorry, a, yes. So we have a few seconds left. So if you are wandering around Tokyo this afternoon in search of a zine, what's the first one that you suggest that we should go and buy and pick up? Right. Uh, I would say, well, so there are two zines that I would definitely recommend. One is called Person by Asuka Kudamochi. And it's just like her playing with the shapes of letters to create illustrations. Really interesting. And another one is Tokyo Old Man Stamp, which is just a collection of prints of, you know, Tokyo Ojisan, Tokyo Old Man that the creator Oshima Natsuko made. Another very interesting zine to pick up. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And we're back with a highlight from my show The Stack this week. I had the pleasure to speak with Cara Barrow and Rebecca Panovka from The Drift, a very cool New York-based literary title. The Drift is a magazine of culture, politics, literature. It's interested in providing a fresh perspective and bringing in new voices who want to talk about any number of subjects, from TED Talks to the state of the essay to the environment, politics, the arts. We're a home for new voices, fresh ideas, um, people on the left who want to go against the grain. The Drift is a venue for all kinds of ideas and all kinds of writers. It's also a place for literature, fiction, poetry, essays, and very short reviews. That's fantastic. Uh, and Kara, one of the things I liked about The Drift as well is I think there's a lot of value in the long form as well. And and I've been seeing this trend. I think, I don't know, some people, I think they're quite condescending to young people say, oh, in this age, people just want to see very quick articles. Right? But, but perhaps that's not true. I mean, and I think a magazine like yours, you know, represents that, right? Yeah, absolutely. We very much designed the magazine with that in mind, responding to what we felt like was a dearth of venues for really serious, ambitious, long-form writing, especially for younger emerging writers. It's very hard to get an assignment like that. If you haven't written much, it's very hard to know who to pitch or hard to find an editor at a more established publication that will take a chance on you if you have a really ambitious idea. Most drift pieces 
are somewhere between three and 6,000 words. Some are even longer. And we think there's a real hunger for it and that we try not to underestimate our audience. We make an effort to make sure that drift pieces are accessible and that there isn't a lot of jargon or kind of academic language. But at the same time, we think that readers want to be challenged and want to sink their teeth into a topic and kind of go on the journey with our writers. So it's very important to us that drift essays, which we work on over many months in a pretty in-depth editing process, that they provide a really worthwhile experience to the reader and then also to the writer who have their work really taken seriously, we hope, um, by our team of editors, and then kind of have a finished product they can be really proud of and that we can be really proud to share. And Rebecca, one thing that I find very interesting when you go to your website and you say, what are you guys looking for when someone is pitching? I, lo I love the honesty there, like things that we're bored, you know, and things that perhaps we're looking for. I think that actually is quite helpful for someone that, that will start pitching in, right? Yeah. So it's meant to be a bit tongue in cheek, yeah. <laughs> a bit silly. We kind of hope people don't take it too seriously. <laughs> But it does give you a sense of what we're thinking about and the kinds of pitches we don't want to get. We do really source almost all of our essays and poems and short stories from cold pitches, just emails that go to the general inbox. And so we do want to give writers who maybe haven't gotten the chance to write anything big and ambitious the chance to do that and uh, to pitch us on any subject. And so we kind of give them a sense of our tone and hope they can run with it. Chiara, I know the latest issue is issue 10, right? I mean, that's great. I mean, so the title is still here. Tell us from the, from the business side of things. I mean, how are you planning to grow the title? Do you prefer the kind of organic growth, kind of, you know, people perhaps recommending to a friend? Or tell us what's the, the business plan in your mind? This is something we're thinking a lot about right now, especially as we're in year three, entering year four of the magazine. We started in the pandemic we were kind of making a lot of things up as we went along since we were kind of launching in a bit of an unprecedented moment. And the pandemic allowed us to devote an enormous amount of time. And at the beginning of the project, our editors were all volunteer. Everyone was pitching in and kind of wearing every hat. And we've been in the process of kind of building out the organization, stabilizing and making sure that the magazine is something that's sustainable and that, and that can last. So we are a nonprofit and the majority of our budget comes, comes from subscriptions, but we also have some grants and donations that help us keep going. And we're always in the process of just building that out. But the growth has been very organic. We launched online only, but about a year and a half in, we started printing. And since then, the growth of our print subscriptions and our bookstore sales has really been very steady. And we're now in Barnes and Nobles around the U.S. and a whole bunch of independent bookstores. International distribution is, is the next step that we're looking to take on. So we're, we're currently working on that because we do have readers around the world online. We want to get physical copies in their hands, too. So it's very important to us that we are constantly growing our audience and constantly reaching out. And I think part of that is by increasing the number of writers we have from abroad. We've always had international contributors and that of course helps to get, get the word out. Everything has been very organic. The growth that has felt very step-by-step step, and it's been important to us to go step-by-step step and make sure we're really putting the 
putting systems in place to allow us to keep doing it. We feel very lucky we've been able to come this far and and really just want to be able to keep doing what we're doing and, and not grow too fast or take on too much. I think organic growth is great. I think it's the way to go. Rebecca, perhaps give us, of course, you don't need to tell all the articles, but perhaps a taster of Issue 10, of perhaps some of the topics mentioned in there. So Issue 10 was centered around a question we've been thinking about, which is what happened to the avant-garde? Where is it? Is there any avant-garde painting and music and literature and dance happening right now? Uh, and if there is, are we missing it? And maybe is the avant-garde itself a historically contingent idea that's no longer relevant? So we asked all of the smartest people we could think of in a variety of disciplines to contribute short dispatches on this topic, answering this question, what happened to the avant-garde? We did an interview with Kathy Parkong, the poet, memoirist, and critic that touched on this and several other questions. Then in our essay section, we've got a really long reported piece on a mining conference telling us what's going on on the inside of the mining industry. We've got an essay diagnosing the cultural effect, the, the effect of Jack Antonoff as a music producer and how he's reshaped pop in his own image. Then we've got a review of the new Bretty and Ellis book that is focused on the connections between the book and Ellis's podcast. We've got an essay on medical testimony and the idea of faking illnesses and another one on uh, RICO, which is a U.S.-based, it's a law that's used to prosecute mobsters, but also that it's expanded its reach to target people who are not part of the mob at all. And then we've got, I think, five short stories taking us everywhere from the American West to the Hong Kong democracy protests in a very kind of surreal story. And then we've got a section at the end of each issue that's sort of mini reviews, which we call mentions, uh, that deal with any number of topics, new books, new movies in these very short capsule reviews. And for the entrepreneurs this week, our team spoke to Luca Faloni, the founder of the eponymous brand, explained his label's slow fashion philosophy, the worrying trend of Italian brands forsaking their local artisans, and why no online feedback will ever compare to engaging with customers directly. Online gives you a lot of numbers that you can analyze and you can learn about consumer behavior, etc. But you don't necessarily know why people behave a certain way just by looking at the numbers. Well, when they are with you in store and they tell you, actually, these trousers are, are too short, I don't want them. And online, you might not, they return them, but you don't know exactly why. You might ask a few people, but you don't, you don't know why. Well, in store, you can have that direct relationship of asking questions and uh, listening how they learn about the brand, what they like, what they don't like, uh, what they like about the products, which products you should do more of and which one you should improve. You learn about things that are not working, things that, that, that are working. So you can improve you as a business, but also it's good for the customer in a way to have another channel where they can access the brand uh, convenience. You know, they can return online orders, they can exchange, mm. they can ask questions, check the products and have a personal touch. Um, let's talk about the real heroes as well as you, Luca. It's, of course, the products that you make. Tell us what it is that your customers uh, acquire, because I guess people will know you've mentioned 
these sort of um, heritage materials, really, uh, you know, uh, beautiful fabrics that you source, you know the and understand the provenance. But tell us a bit more about the style, the cuts, the approach. What is it that the consumer comes to you for and why do they keep coming back? We are well positioned in terms of giving you uh, a product which is at the edge between formal and casual, which, which is a trend of dressing of the last, you know, uh, 10 years, let's say, and accelerated with COVID. Um, so we, we offer a classic product that never go out of fashion, and we do so in, in, in great materi- materials. So for men's that are, uh, you know, they want something of quality and they, they don't want to think about it too much, they, they need to trust the brand that makes the right choice for them, we offer those high-quality icon pieces that you, we will always need. So, for instance, we have our classic linen shirt is fantastic, but we will not give you a choice of 10 type of linen shirts. We give you two or three choices, and then we, give, we offer you a lot of color choice, for instance, which I think is something that men value. Uh, same for our cashmere pieces in the winter. Uh, we would have several designs, but at Zip-Up will only be one choice. We will not give you too many choices. And, and, and so we, we not only give you something of quality at the right price, but also make your life easier by making the choice for you of what that design should be. And we don't change it year after year. It will remain part of our permanent collection. That, that's really interesting. And I wonder do you think that there are brands who are too affected by chasing trends this idea of seasonality and new lines trying to constantly be selling the new and the next thing and actually maybe consumers they don't want that they don't want that it's overwhelming that choice isn't it they just want to trust they want to know and they like staples they like consistency yeah i certainly think that brands put too much emphasis on changing everything every year rather than really focusing on improving. And it's mm. about constant improvement. Like when I told you that we design something and we have it in our permanent collection, what I mean is that that design will never go away, but every year we collect feedback from a customer to improve it a tiny bit. And, and it might be just about a fit or, you know, a small design element or something that needs to be adjusted about the material. But we, we do try to, to, to go for an endless improvement over the years. Tell me about your expansion plans down the, the track, because obviously you have built something which is very trusted already, and that's hard for a relatively newer entrant into the marketplace. So that presumably gives you a great foundation to then explore new opportunities whether those are new geographies products whole (laughs) product categories tell me about how you look to the future luca what how do you calibrate your thinking what's the big strategic things that are front of mind for you as you look over a longer term time horizon yes so there are many aspects in which i look at the expansion of the business and obviously, one of them, besides growing the business, is grow- making sure that we, we can grow the supply of our products, keeping the same quality. Obviously, it's easy to, to give great, great service and a great product when, you, when you're a small business. As you grow, that becomes much more complicated. So one of our focus is to really focus on quality control of the product and of the, of the service. So we are investing a lot on that. And in terms of expanding the business, we on the online side, we are pushing new geographies that we were not investing that much in marketing before. On the retail side, we are now focusing mainly in Europe and US in expanding our retail network. Asia is something that is not in the near future in our plan, but we, we will eventually think about it. But now you, you, Europe and US are the focus. Collection-wise, we over the years, we, we've expanded organically, I, I like to say, uh, from one category to the other. For instance, the very first trousers we did were linen trousers. And not because 
we want to do the trousers, but you know, people that were buying our linen shirts said, do you also have linen trousers? And then we, we thought, actually, we know one thing or two about linen textile. Let's learn about how to make trousers out of it. You know? So in terms of collection, we are the size that we are relatively happy with the size. But there are two categories where we can do more over the years. And one is outerwear and one is shoes, where we basically don't have an offering yet. So we are working on adding some new designs there. Uh, it's very exciting. I'm sure your your converts, your de- your dedicated uh, customers, will be very excited to hear that there's potentially these uh, developments ahead. Talk to me a bit about the challenge then of uh, the challenges of scale, because you've already mentioned a couple of things: quality control, keeping that consistency is increasingly difficult. Presumably, you have conversations with people, potential partners, backers, even who might say, "Look, look, look! You've got a great brand. You need to go." wholesale you've got to go bigger you've got to think big 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 growth 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 do you have those conversations i know you obviously say no when people do say that but what what does that do those conversations does it provide food for thought does it just actually luca make you more confident that you're right and you're going to stick to your to your guns would we ever see wholesale as part of the luca floney idea yeah so wholesale is something you will never see from us so to give you the answer first, as they say. Uh, why is that? Is because to be profitable on the wholesale channel, and obviously as a business you, you need to be profitable, otherwise you go bust. To be profitable on that channel, you need to overcharge. The customer must pay a very high price because there is the margin of a third-party retailer that you need to add to the, to the product price. So we will never do that. But it's not only about price point that we'll have to change for to, when you do wholesale. It's also you lose control of the customer service or the explanation of your products and also where your products end up. And we want to retain a full control. If you think about some of the most successful brands in other category of the world, like Apple is essentially a direct-to-consumer brand. Tesla is a direct-to-consumer brand. Uh, not only you, you you control the customer experience, but you get the feedback directly from the customer. If a customer buys my product in a store which is not mine... How do I know if they tell the system the, 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 the trousers is too long or too short? I don't know. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. And for food neighborhoods this week, we head to Frankfurt in Germany. The city is known as the country's financial capital and home to one of Europe's largest airports. But when it comes to food, the city has a surprising, unique take on a particular German and Austrian staple, the schnitzel. Monaco's Chris Czermak, an Austrian citizen and a one-time Frankfurt resident, tell us about one of the city's oldest neighborhoods, Sachsenhausen, where traditional style pubs are at their best. As an Austrian, you need to understand just how painful it is for me to admit what I'm about to say. After all, the Wiener Schnitzel is what we Austrians do. It's one of our staples, and really the grandest and original of all schnitzels. And yet, for me, it's the Frankfurter Schnitzel, from the German city of Frankfurt, that really gets my mouth watering. Now, before my Austrian citizenship is revoked, I should stress that the reason the Frankfurter Schnitzel is special isn't really about the quality of the schnitzel itself, which obviously is better in Vienna. Obviously. Instead, what makes the Frankfurter Schnitzel special is the grüne Soße, or a green sauce, that comes with it. Served cold, it's really such a simple condiment. Basically a mix of sour cream and seven distinct herbs. Borage, chervil, cress, parsley, burnet, sorrel and chive. And Frankfurt has raised this to an art form. 
establishments here, of course, make their own, and they all make it slightly differently, basically by varying the mix and amount of herbs. There's even a green sauce festival and contest. This year's tasting prize actually went to a local catering company, the Römerberger Profis. Now, the most traditional way to eat green sauce is with boiled eggs and potatoes. But I'm telling you, if you're not a vegetarian, do go for the schnitzel with roasted potatoes, and you will not be disappointed. And if you really want to be a proper Frankfurter, then order it with a glass of Frankfurt's apple wine, or Ebelvoi, or Eppler, in the Hessian German lingo here. Apple wine is an alcoholic cider local to the region, typically mixed with mineral water or Sprite, depending if you like it on the sweet or sour side. It's the perfect summer alternative if you're not a beer drinker, and it's another thing I have not been able to get out of my head since living in the region. So then the question becomes where to get these local delicacies, and really there is a plethora of options and places that will compete for the best green sauce and apple wine throughout the city and the state of Hesse that Frankfurt is based in. But since this podcast is about food and neighborhoods, I'm going to go with tradition here. And tradition would dictate that it has to be the old Frankfurt neighborhood of Sachsenhausen. Located just south of the Main River, Sachsenhausen was spared bombing in the Second World War. So while Old Town Central Frankfurt was only recently rebuilt in its Old Town style, the neighborhood of Alt Sachsenhausen, or Old Sachsenhausen, remains intact. And it's long been known as Apple Wine Central, with more than 50 cideries located here in the pre-war period. Two of the most historic still operating Ebelvoi establishments are next door to each other on Schweizerstraße. They're called Zum Gemalten Haus, an apple wine serving mainstay since the late 1800s. And then there's also Apfelwein Wagner, built in 1901 and under its current Wagner family ownership since 1931. I'd recommend the first, Zum Gemalten Haus, for the ambience and the paintings on the walls by a local artist from the 1950s showing old Alt-Sachsenhausen life. The street, Schweizerstraße, is itself a wonderful street and hub of classic daily Sachsenhausen life, with a weekly market on its main square and a popular annual street festival in July, sadly delayed this year for cost reasons, but back in 2024. Now, if you want to go even further back to the historic and more touristy apple wine locations, then head to Rittergasse. It's a pedestrianized part of the neighborhood, that's Frankfurt's seediest and most popular night spot for clubbing and drinking. I've caught many a bachelor and bachelorette party wandering Rittergasse in the evenings. Just be ready for the quintessentially German tradition where bachelors literally have to pay their own way by selling odds and ends to passers-by on the street. For a proper meal, I'd suggest heading a few streets down to Wallstraße, where you'll find two more classic Ebelvoi establishments dating back almost two centuries. There's Fichtekrenzel, which opened in 1849, and Atschel, built back in 1861. If you're looking for a place ever so slightly more modern, you can try Lokalbahnhof, which also does a handy brunch menu for the day after your bachelor party. Or you can head to Depot 1899, Depot 1899, a more stylish dining alternative housed in a historic former tram depot. Wherever you do go, I'd suggest avoiding some of the other stranger Frankfurt food traditions like Handkäse mit Musik, literally translated as hand cheese with music. It's basically a hard cheese with onions that makes you, well, musical. 
personally, I'd stick to the Frankfurter Schnitzel in Sachsenhausen if I were you. Tell them in Austrian said it was okay. For Monocle, I'm Chris Chermack. And one more story here on The Curator. We meet Amelia Meath and Nick Sanborn, the duo behind Sylvain Asso. Over the past decade and four studio albums, the electronic pop duo has picked up two Grammy nominations and a legion of fans. Let's have a listen. I think before the pandemic, I would have said it was less important than I think we both think it is now. There was something that happened during that time where not having that ability, I think, made us realize that like a record isn't really done for us until we kind of complete the cycle of playing it in front of people and like feeling that reaction. So being able to get back out has just been, I mean unbelievable. I feel, I feel like I'm in a whole new band. Like it feels so empowering and wonderful and like, and the UK, I mean, we've played the UK so many times. Like we came to London alone nine times on our first record. And so being able to finally come back and then have that first show sell out so fast and then figure out a way to add another show on the same night, it just felt like I was just so grateful for the entire experience. It felt really like, like hyped and intense and beautiful. It was amazing. And you mentioned there that you were playing two shows back to back. And Amelia, lots of people know that as well as singing and writing the music, you're also an incredible dancer. And you were just moving for the entire performance. And I just couldn't believe that you were then going to do it all again straight after. It just looked exhausting. <laughs> But I wanted to ask you kind of when you're writing the songs, Is kind of dance and movement always there from the beginning? Is that always something that you're kind of imagining how it might feel to, to move to what you're writing? You know, I really rarely think about the kind of movement I'm going to be doing when I'm writing the songs. It's always a wonderful surprise to feel all of the, most of the movement is improvised every show. And it's so nice to discover what, is there as I'm learning how to play the songs in front of people and to find what kind of movement the song that we created inspires. Amazing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your album, No Rules Sandy, which came out last summer. Amelia, I'll, I'll stay with you. Could you tell me a little bit about the process of creating the album? The album kind of created itself in a fugue state in a three-week period where we were in Los Angeles in January of 2022. And we decided that we wanted to release the record in the same way that we had created it. So everything happened very quickly. And basically, every day we would sit down and just try to write a song together. And it kept on working. And before we knew it, we had enough songs for an album. And they were all, they all had a similar kind of frenetic, wild, improvisatory energy that we decided to keep, to just, to just keep and not polish too much. We also wanted every moment of the record itself to have sound in it, which is why there are in between tracks, in between every song. As well as that, you've got these kind of extra little sounds and snippets 
of kind of, I guess, your your lives, I guess, that you've included as well. And it feels really personal. You've been performing together for, for about 10 years. Nick, were you quite surprised that you were making the music so personal? Now it feels kind of much more vulnerable or did that just quite natural and like it was the right time to kind of include that sort of thing? I think the whole process of making the record ended up feeling very kind of of a moment and almost like scrapbooky. To, to me. And so when we were putting the track listing together, there was one moment where we included some little, you know, snippet of a voicemail. I can't even remember what came first, but it was like the minute we did that, that felt like it was more true than it had been before. And I think every, it just felt like the right, the natural thing to do that, like, if we want to let people in on this experience, it needs to feel like you need to, even if you don't understand what we're talking about, you need to feel kind of that digital ephemera feeling that we all, we all have some version of all of those sounds on our phone or sitting somewhere, you know? And it's, it, when you smash them all together, you kind of get this snapshot of like a, a single month of life. Mm. And it felt, it just felt like that was the right way to let people in on that. I, th- I think we're always looking for, ways to make more doorways of accessibility for people. Cause we make like pretty weird music, but we want it to feel really accessible and really poppy and really welcoming and, and finding ways to like give people that, that doorway into it, I think is something we talk about a lot. Indeed. I'm out to see. I know my fortune. It's you. Coming back to you I'm coming back to you I'm coming back to you I'm coming back to you And Amelia, just kind of picking up on that, it is kind of unusual music, it's hard to sort of pinpoint you know exactly kind of what genre or things like that and is that something I guess as you've become kind of so successful over the years is that something that you feel like you sort of have to fight for a little bit that you need to make sure that you don't become too polished or that it it stays a little bit kind of weird and wonderful absolutely I've been really feeling that recently I think No Rule Sandy in a lot of ways was kind of like a personal welcoming back into making truly strange music that's just all our own. I think in the years after our initial success, I think we've been doing a very good job of maintaining our authenticity, but it is quite hard to not want to appeal to people that you, or to like project onto our your listeners or assume that they want to hear something in particular instead of just what you want to give. Once the machine of capitalism has you in its grasp, it loves to squeeze. Um, <laughs> so fighting to, to still be strange is something that I think we're going to keep on doing. Though really, like with everything hard, I find that the answer is usually relaxation. As I said, you've been kind of working together as, as Silvanesso since 2013 and also together as a couple. And I wonder... 
how when you're kind of making this music and performing it and all the rest of it how do you kind of ensure that you've got enough friction and it's the good kind of friction and you know you can kind of bat heads and and something amazing can can come out of that is that something that's quite sort of difficult to retain I don't oh, that's so easy because yeah. we're both very naturally combative people. <laughs> the friction part is easy. Yeah, the friction, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's quite, yeah. Actually, the weirdest part is there's a time years ago in the band where we there wasn't as much friction and we, we realized it was because we were both screwing up. We were trying to like... We were we just were, trying to be nice to each we other. We were trying to like not break it and be too nice to each other and not just say how we felt. And the music got boring. And so yeah. we like ditched all the stuff that we had made because we weren't arguing enough. Yeah, because it was boring. Yeah. And like just, be, yeah, being boring is, is the enemy for us, I think. So now you're prepared to tell each other, I actually, I don't like what you're doing at the moment. Let's <laughs> rip it all up and start oh, yeah. again. That to us is the sign of a healthy interaction. Yeah, exactly. Also, the word that we usually use is, I think you can do better, which is even more maddening. <laughs> Yeah, it really pisses you off, but it's there. Like Amelia is always right when she tells that to me, and I, th- I feel like I'm always right when I tell it to her. Yeah, <laughs> I think you probably are right, but I, uh, Nick is much better at hearing it than I am. What well, you give? That's a gift. Like in any band, that's a gift you give to each other. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm not as good as it. At it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just finally, I just wanted to ask what, what's next for, for Sylvanesso and what kind of, you know, you've got two Grammy nominations. You, you know, the gig that I went to, one of two on the same night was completely sold out with just people that were going absolutely wild to, to see you live. What are kind of the next big things that, that you're planning on doing? We're about to embark on a, on the longest tour we've ever done, which will be nine weeks long. Uh, and after, yeah, which is nuts. And then after that, we're going to go off into our little hidey hole and work on work on a new album, I think. For some, yeah, we're going to take some real time to work on it, which I'm so excited about. Yeah. That was Sylvan Asso there, and that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening. <laughs>